of valuable. Listen carefully to his story. See how he profited by his spoil. And note the circumstances under which he was captured. And then, 30 minutes from now, ask yourself if you honestly believe that crime can ever pay. Yes, 
currently, many things have been stolen from the showcases, and the chase has been rifled. Yes, yes, there are several things, Missy. I can tell. Right there in that trail was where my husband always put the watch with the hunting tape. It, it was a good watch, but nobody buys hunting cases anymore. Yes, yes. But what we want to know is, Mrs. Whitted, did your husband keep an inventory of his stock? Is there any way of telling what is gone? Oh, yes. There's a ledger in the safe with every item in it. Yes, 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 yes. There, there it is. Here are the rings, for instance. The length, size, and weight of the ring are entered here. And these marks correspond with the marks my husband put on the inside of every ring. So try and make it only be read with a magnifying glass. Then, when the ring was sold, he always wrote the word sold in this column. Then it will be possible by checking the remaining stock against this book to know exactly what merchandise was stolen. Yes, yes I guess it will be. Well, I must say, Mr. Hooded kept very thorough books. Yes, Jerry. My husband was a very, very man. Well, Mrs. if you don't mind, we'll check over the stock right away. Every moment counts, you know. And so the widow of the murdered jeweler checked her husband's stock with the shutters, choking back the tears as piece by piece recalls some intimate detail of her life. Some recollection of an association abruptly and permanently terminated. But the brave woman sees it through, and hours later the sheriff is in possession of his first real clue, a complete list of the stolen goods. That afternoon, he checked with his deputy to headquarters. Boys, I'm having the list of stolen goods mimeographed. By tomorrow morning, it will be in the hands of the pawn shop details of every police department in the state. It ought to be our biggest single help. Sooner or later, this guy will have to pawn some of the stuff. What makes you so sure it's a one-man job, Lancaster? Well, I just have a feeling it was. I don't know why. Pick up any dope when you were questioning British acquaintances? Nothing of any value. It was well thought of in Crockett. Didn't have any enemies that I could find out about. Strange thing. What a bloody, vicious murder. I can't understand it. Well, I can tell you one thing. We're going to have a job on our hands after we catch the guy. Why? The people over in Crockett are in an ugly mood. They're talking about lynching. Oh, let them blow off steam if it makes them feel better. But I can assure you, Lancaster, there won't be any lynching. Not while I'm sheriff. More than two weeks passed by while the citizens of Crockett cool off. And no news is heard from Sheriff Beale's list of stolen goods. Seventeen days after the crime, the sheriff prepares a second list and broadcasts this one to every police department in the United States. But still, there's no reply. And then, 26 days after the murder, the sheriff calls Deputy Joe Joseph into his office. Joe, some of our stolen goods in that footed murder has shown up at last. Good. Who is it? Los Angeles. I just got a wire from Chief Speckle. They picked up a ring and watch that were pawned at the Castle Loan Company. I want you to go down there and find out all about it. Yes, sir. I'm on the way right now. Next morning, Joe Joseph interviews the proprietor of the pawn shop in Los Angeles. I want to look at that ring and watch you're holding for the police department. And who are you? Deputy Sheriff Joseph of Contra Costa County. Oh, yeah. They said you were 
is coming in. Well, here's the stuff. When will they phone? Uh, December 20th. Who phoned them? Well, the fellow signed the fun ticket, Johnny Gomezino. I gave him six fifty for the ring and the watch. What did he look like? Oh, he's about 35, I should say. Five feet, 10 or 11 inches. Good-looking guy. Has curly hair. American? No, maybe a Mexican or a mulatto. Okay. Now we're doing these things. I want that pawn ticket he signed. Oh, yes, sir. Here's a six fifty. Oh, thank you. I'll just pass it up Oh, there you are, Joe. Glad I caught you. Oh, hello, Eddie. Captain sent me down to tell you they just turned up another ring from your list at a pawn shop over on Broadway. Fine. We'll go right around there as soon as I get this back. Uh, what name did the man use who pawned this ring? Well, let me see now. This is right here on the pawn ticket. Uh, Mike Havilov. Hey, let me see that ticket. All right. Mm-hmm. All right. I'll redeem the ring and take the ticket with me. What did this Mike Avillas look like? Well, I'll tell you. He might be a Mexican. I don't know. He was a good-looking fellow with white curly hair, but uh, he was 35 years old, I think. Well, I guess he was about five years old. So he's got a pretty definite identification from those two pawnbrokers down in L.A., Sheriff. I've exported the handwriting on the two pawn tickets, and the names Johnny Gomestino and Michael Phillips are in the same handwriting. Sure. I'll run off another list of stuff, including a description of our suspect. I knew he wouldn't lay low too long. Charles Vale speaking. Yeah, that's right. How do you know? We know a lot about him. At 
We don't know his name. So you can't help us out on that? No, I can't. A friend of mine down in the field knows him, I think. You might ask him. What's his name? Sandy Lentz. He hangs out at the Pacific Pool Hall. Okay. Joe, you better get Chief Black to help you look over the pawn shop there in San Jose. All right. Bill and I will go down to Santa Cruz and see Mr. Lentz. Well, I ain't sure. No? 
Seems like I heard him say he had some relatives living in Merced. Mm, that's fine, ma'am. Nothing like a gold star to refresh the memory, is there? Come on, Joe. Now, look, Joe. I'm going to hang around here and see if I can pick up anything else on this bird. And I want you to get over to Merced and see what they know about him over there. Okay. Well, never mind. I'll send a man over to your place to look at it. 
I want to compare those signatures with some others I'm collecting. If you're positive that this is the man, Mrs. Upton, then you've helped us a great deal. This places our suspect within seven miles of the scene of the crime the morning it occurred. The signatures on Mrs. Upton's register do closely resemble the handwriting of the signatures on the pawn ticket. And Sheriff Beale is now absolutely convinced that Dan Grosh is the murderer. But despite the constant vigilance of the police, despite the ceaseless work of the deputy sheriff, week after week goes by and no trace of Grosh. found him sane, and then found him guilty of murder in the first degree. 
There was no recommendation of clemency. And in spite of his boast that he would never hang Dan Gross's lifeless body swinging from the gibbet in San Quentin in the gray dawn of September 12, 1933, added another human sacrifice on the altar of society, above which is inscribed in flaming letters the legend, Crime Does Not Pay.